Chapter 15 When Jim Simons looked up, there were dozens of anxious faces staring at him. It was the morning of November 9th, 2016, the day after the presidential election. Nearly 50 scientists, researchers, and other employees of the Simons Foundation had spontaneously assembled in an open space on the ninth floor of the Foundation's headquarters in Lower Manhattan. They were trying to come to grips with what had just happened. The space was sun-drenched, but almost everyone at the impromptu gathering looked dour. They were concerned about the nation's future, as well as their own. It was well known that Simons had been one of the biggest supporters of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Now the Foundation's employees worried that the incoming Trump administration would target charitable foundations, including Simons' own. Some wondered if the Foundation's tax-exempt status could be stripped as a form of retribution. The chatter ebbed as Simons, standing near a bank of elevators in a blue blazer and tan chinos, began to speak. In measured tones, he reminded the staffers of the importance of their work, researching autism, Understanding the origins of the universe and pursuing other worthy endeavors were long-term projects that needed to proceed, Simon said. Keep working together and try to ignore the political upheaval. We're all disappointed, Simon said. The best we can do is focus on our work. The employees slowly returned to their offices, some newly reassured. Simon's was somber, but Bob Mercer was celebratory. Mercer, his daughter Rebecca, and the rest of the family were preparing for their annual holiday party, held in early December each year at the family's Long Island estate, Owl's Nest. Mercer didn't especially enjoy speaking with colleagues or others. He was passionate about his dress-up parties, however. Since 2009, the family had welcomed hundreds of friends, business associates, and others to their mansion for an elaborate, themed costume affair. Mercer's more sociable wife, Diana, was usually the one at the center of the revelry. Mercer liked to sit in a quiet corner with a grandchild or play poker with one of the professional dealers hired for the evening. This year's festivities figured to be so special, even Mercer was expected to join in the fun. The chosen theme was villains and heroes, and the evening's invitations featured a sword-wielding centurion crouching in an ancient ruin, facing down a serpent-haired Medusa. The Mercers directed their guests to a secret website where they received costume suggestions from film, television, comic books, and everyday life, including Superman, Captain Hook, and Mother Teresa. As the Saturday evening festivities began, Investor and Trump supporter Peter Thiel, dressed as Hulk Hogan, mingled with Kellyanne Conway, who wore a superwoman costume. Steve Bannon came as himself, a likely jab at those who deemed his insurgent political activities to be villainous, or a suggestion that he was the election's hero. As for the Mercers, Bob was dressed as Mandrake the Magician, a comic book superhero known for hypnotizing his targets, while Rebecca came as Black Widow, covered head to toe in black latex. Word spread that Donald Trump was on his way, taking a break from transition meetings and pressing cabinet decisions to join the group. A few years earlier, Mercer was just another quirky quant. To the extent he had a reputation, it was for collecting guns, backing a urine research enthusiast among other out-there causes, and helping his enigmatic hedge fund beat the market. 
Now the president-elect of the United States was making the hike out to Long Island to pay homage to Mercer. Between the $26 million he had spent on Republican causes, his daughter's insistence that Trump tap Bannon and Conway to resuscitate his flailing campaign, and Breitbart News's unflinching support for the Trump campaign, Bob and Rebecca Mercer were among those most responsible for Trump's shocking victory. The Mercers laid the groundwork for the Trump revolution, Bannon said. Irrefutably, when you look at the donors during the past four years, they have had the single biggest impact of anybody. The president-elect and his entourage rolled up in hulking black sport utility vehicles, and Trump stepped out, wearing a black overcoat, dark suit, and a checkered tie, but no costume. He made his way through the other guests, stopping to greet Mercer, and soon was addressing the crowd. Trump joked that he'd just had his longest conversation with Mercer, two words. He lauded Mercer's support for his campaign and thanked him and his daughter for urging that he hire Bannon, Conway, and Bossy to lead the campaign. Moves that gave it needed organization, he said. Then Trump joined the Mercers, Bannon, and Conway at the party's head table. In the aftermath of the election, Mercer focused on running Renaissance, working as closely as ever with Peter Brown. Mercer didn't seem interested in an ambassadorship or any of the other obvious rewards that often accrue to those backing the victors in presidential elections. Still, Bannon was slated to become the White House's chief strategist, and Conway would become a counselor to the president, ensuring that Mercer would have unparalleled access to Trump. Mercer remained one of the Republican Party's most important patrons and continued to control Breitbart News, giving him influence over the party's ascendant, anti-establishment wing. Rebecca Mercer assumed a more active role in the new administration. For weeks, she was ensconced in Bannon's office in Trump Tower, serving as an advisor on the selection of nominees to the Trump cabinet. Mercer successfully lobbied for Senator Jeff Sessions to be chosen as attorney general pushed hard to prevent Mitt Romney from becoming Secretary of State, and played a role in the choice of lawyer Jay Clayton to lead the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, even as her influence raised some eyebrows due to her father's position as co-CEO of one of the nation's largest hedge funds. Later, the president turned to one of Rebecca Mercer's longtime associates, Leonard Leo, who ran the conservative Federalist Society, for guidance on nearly all of his judicial nominees. She also made plans to lead an outside group designated to support Trump's agenda. Rebecca Mercer was emerging as a public figure in her own right. Early that year, GQ magazine named Mercer the 17th most powerful person in Washington, D.C., calling her the First Lady of the Alt-Right. The family's political clout, along with its ongoing support for the president-elect, seemed assured. David Magerman was miserable. Though he was a registered Democrat, Magerman considered himself a political centrist, and he sometimes voted for Republican candidates. The 2016 campaign was a different story, however. Trump had disparaged immigrants, spoken of shifting funds from public schools to charter schools, and promised to spend billions of dollars to build a security wall on the Mexican border attitudes and policies that Magerman judged misguided or even cruel. The candidates' vow to restrict abortion rights worried Magerman and horrified his wife, Deborah. After the election, Magerman unfriended almost everyone he knew on Facebook, 
hoping to avoid painful reminders of Trump's victory. After the inauguration, Megerman reconsidered his position. He thought he might be able to move the administration in a more benign direction. By then, the 48-year-old had spent a decade working on education-related issues. He believed that his experience might be helpful to Trump's team, or that he might be able to contribute in other areas. In January, Megerman called Rebecca Mercer on her cell phone, but she didn't pick up. He tried her again, leaving a message that he wanted to help. Megerman got a return call, but it was from Bob Mercer. Despite his usual shyness, Mercer seemed eager to discuss the merits of Trump and various contentious political topics. They disagreed about climate change, Obamacare, and the value of a border wall, but their tone remained civil. He will blow things up, Mercer said about Trump. That's what I'm worried about, Megerman said. Do you really want to bring back the fear of nuclear war, Megerman asked. Mercer said he wasn't all that concerned about nuclear war. Before hanging up, Mercer said he had enjoyed their back and forth, but Megerman was left more frustrated than before. He decided to wait to see what policies the new administration embraced. He didn't like what he saw. In late January 2017, Trump signed an executive order banning foreign nationals from seven predominantly Muslim countries from visiting the U.S. for 90 days and suspending entry to the country for all Syrian refugees. The Senate confirmed Sessions as Attorney General, and Trump continued to attack the credibility of both the U.S. intelligence community and members of the media, actions that further irked Megerman. Megerman wanted to do something to temper or even counteract the administration's policies, but he wasn't sure what to do. He made plans to donate to local Democrats, and he called Planned Parenthood, offering assistance to the nonprofit, which provides sexual health care. Megerman also tried calling Jared Kushner, Trump's influential son-in-law, to warn him about policies the administration was embracing and the influence Mercer was having, but he failed to reach him. Megerman was beset by guilt. Mercer's foundation was invested in the Medallion Fund, so Megerman felt he had personally helped provide Mercer with the resources to put Trump in office and encourage policies that Megerman found abhorrent. It pisses me off he told Deborah, his anger boiling over. I've made software that makes white rich guys like Mercer even richer. In phone calls with colleagues, Megerman complained about how Mercer made the Trump presidency possible. He shared a conversation he had had years earlier with Mercer in which, he recalled, Mercer argued that African Americans had been better off before the enactment of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 which banned discrimination in public accommodations, employment, and federally funded activities. Word of Megerman's criticism reached Mercer. One day, as Megerman worked in his home office, his phone rang. I hear you're going around saying I'm a white supremacist, Mercer said. That's ridiculous. Megerman was caught off guard by the accusation. Those weren't my exact words, he told his boss, stammering. Megerman recovered his poise. That's the impression I have, though, Megerman said, citing Mercer's earlier comments about the Civil Rights Act. I'm sure I never would have said that, Mercer responded. Mercer then recited data that he claimed demonstrated that African Americans enjoyed a better standard of living in the decade before the legislation, including statistics about the percentage of African Americans in various professions. He promised to send Megerman a book to prove his points. The Civil Rights Act had 
infantilized African Americans by making them dependent on the government, Mercer told Magerman. Now Magerman was really upset. Bob, they had to use different bathrooms and water fountains. Magerman outlined his concerns about Trump's policy positions, rhetoric, and cabinet choices. Mercer responded that he wasn't involved in any decisions made by Trump or those close to him. He simply had wanted to prevent Clinton from being elected. Now Magerman was really burning. How can you say you're not involved? Magerman screamed, pointing to the group Rebecca Mercer had formed to boost Trump's agenda, as well as his continued close relationships with Bannon and Conway. You should meet Bannon. He's a sweet guy, Mercer said. If what you're doing is harming the country, then you have to stop, Magerman told Mercer before they hung up. Mercer didn't seem especially perturbed by the conversation. He was used to having it out with more liberal members of his staff. For him, it was almost a sport. A few days later, Mercer sent Magerman a book called Civil Rights, Rhetoric or Reality, written in 1984 by Hoover Institution economist Thomas Sowell that the New York Times had called brutally frank, perceptive, and important. The book argues that minorities began moving into higher-paying jobs in large numbers years before the passage of the Civil Rights Act, and that affirmative action had caused the most disadvantaged segments of the minority population to fall behind their white counterparts. Sowell's argument focuses on narrow financial measures but ignores overall human factors, Magerman says, citing one of many criticisms he and others have of the book. Magerman was unsettled by the conversation with Mercer. He wanted to do something to stop his boss. Magerman dug through Renaissance's employee handbook to see what discipline he might face if he aired his concerns. He also spoke with Peter Brown and Mark Silber, who said they doubted Mercer had made racist comments. Another executive joked that Mercer didn't speak enough for anyone to know if he was a racist. Magerman understood from those conversations that he was likely on safe ground criticizing Mercer if he steered clear of saying anything about Renaissance. In February, Magerman sent an email to a Wall Street Journal reporter. That would be yours truly. I'm ready to take action, he wrote. Enough is enough. In the resulting interview, conducted at a restaurant Magerman owned in Bala Kinwid, Pennsylvania, he held little back. His views show contempt for the social safety net that he doesn't need, but many Americans do, Magerman said. Now he's using the money I helped him make to implement his worldview by supporting Trump and proposing that government be shrunk down to the size of a pinhead. Magerman shared concern about his own future. I'd like to think I'm speaking out in a way that won't risk my job, but it's very possible they could fire me, he said. This is my life's work. I ran a group that wrote the trading system they still use. The morning and online version of the story appeared on the paper's website. Magerman received a phone call from Renaissance. A representative told Magerman that he was being suspended without pay and was prohibited from having any contact with the company. The election was starting to cause discomfort for Mercer as well. He and his daughter had become so closely associated with Bannon and the far-right segment of the Republican Party that they had become targets for those unhappy with the nation's lurch to the right. At one point, the New York State Democratic Committee ran a television advertisement flashing Bob and Rebecca Mercer's faces on the screen, 
saying they were the same people who bankrolled Trump's social media bot army and Steve Bannon's extremist Breitbart News. In March 2017, about 60 demonstrators gathered outside Mercer's home, decrying his funding of far-right causes and calling for higher taxes on the wealthy. A week later, a second group held a protest, some holding signs reading, Mercer, pay your taxes. Police officers closed the road in front of Al's nest to accommodate the protesters, who stood in the pouring rain for hours chanting criticisms of Mercer. Mercer played a major role in bringing about the election of Donald Trump, said Bill McNulty, an 82-year-old local resident who joined the group. We saw the corrosive and contaminating effect of dark money on politics. The Mercers received death threats, friends said, forcing the family to hire security. For a family that relished its privacy, their growing infamy was both shocking and disturbing. Renaissance didn't know what to do with Magerman. The firm rarely fires employees, even when they're unproductive, disinterested, or difficult. The risk is just too great. Even lackluster, mid-level researchers and programmers are privy to insights and understandings that may prove helpful to rivals. That was one reason Magerman felt comfortable speaking out about Mercer. He had seen others show insubordination without facing consequences. Yet Magerman had committed a cardinal sin for any employee. He had attacked his boss in as public a fashion as possible, even suggesting he was racist. And there were few companies as publicity shy as Renaissance, one reason many at the firm were reluctant to welcome Magerman back. Magerman had mixed feelings of his own. He had made so much money at the firm that he didn't have to worry about the financial pain of getting fired. He loathed what Mercer was doing to the country and wanted to stop his political activity. But Magerman also remembered how kind Mercer and his wife had been to him when he first joined the firm, inviting him to dinners at Friendly's and movie nights with their family. Magerman respected Bob for his intelligence and creativity, and a big part of him still yearned to please the powerful men in his life. At that point, Magerman had spent two decades at Renaissance and he felt an appreciation for the firm. He decided that if he could go on speaking about Mercer's politics, he'd return to his old job. As he discussed his future with Brown and others, Magerman didn't make it easy on them. I can't take hush money, he told them. At one point, Magerman paid a visit to the Long Island office and was hurt that so many staffers seemed unfriendly. No one wanted to jeopardize their position at the firm by lending Magerman support, it seemed. Either that, or even left-leaning staffers thought he went about his protests the wrong way. People I expected to be warm and fuzzy were standoffish, he said, after the encounter. They see me as the bad guy. Overcoming imposing obstacles, the two sides worked out a tentative agreement for Magerman to return to the fold, with conditions placed on what he could say about Mercer. The deal wasn't finalized, though. To help repair the relationship, Magerman decided to attend an April 20th poker tournament at New York's St. Regis Hotel benefiting Math for America, the nonprofit that Simons had founded. The event was a highly anticipated annual showdown for quants, professional poker players, and others. Magerman knew Simons, Mercer, Brown, and other Renaissance executives would be there. Who knew? Maybe Rebecca Mercer would show up. I wanted to reintroduce myself and be part of the culture again, Magerman says, to show I was making an effort. 
As Megerman made the three-hour drive from his home, he began feeling anxious. He was unsure how he'd be received by his colleagues or others in attendance. At the hotel, Megerman pledged $5,000 to enter the tournament. He immediately noticed he hadn't dressed appropriately. Most of the approximately 200 players in the carpeted second-floor ballroom wore suits or sports jackets. The security team wore tuxedos. Megerman went with jeans and an open-collared dress shirt. It was a mistake that added to his discomfort and apprehension. Megerman entered the poker room and immediately saw Bob Mercer. This was no time to be shy, Megerman thought. He walked right up to Mercer and complimented him on the color of his suit, which was an unusual shade of blue. Mercer smiled and said one of his daughters had picked it out, an exchange that seemed to go well. Phew, Megerman thought. Just after 7 p.m., Megerman began playing No Limit Hold'em at a table with Simons, a member of the Poker Hall of Fame named Dan Harrington and a few others. When Simons ducked into his side room to smoke, Megerman followed. He apologized for the negative attention thrust on the firm after his criticism of the Mercers. I'm sorry how things played out, Megerman told Simons. I respect you and I want you to know that. Simons accepted the apology and said their standoff seemed to be coming to a resolution, further buoying Megerman. Back at his table, Megerman lost some early hands but remained in good spirits, pledging an additional $15,000 for buy-ins so he could continue playing. A few tables away, Mercer was playing against some investors and others, including sport finance executive Chris English. Mercer won several early hands, but English detected a tell. When Mercer played a great hand, he whistled patriotic songs, including the Battle Hymn of the Republic. When he was less confident of his cards, Mercer hummed those songs. Seizing on his discovery, English quickly won a pot over Mercer. Megerman was on his own losing streak. Around 10.30 p.m., after consuming several glasses of 12-year-old scotch, Megerman was out of the tournament. It was too early to go home, though, and he was still on a high from the looming rapprochement with his colleagues. So Megerman decided to walk the room and watch others play. He approached a table that included Rebecca Mercer. She was staring at him. As Megerman got a little closer, Mercer became agitated. She called to him in anger, Karma is a bitch. Shaken, Megerman walked around the table and stood next to Mercer. She told Megerman that his criticism of the Mercer's support for Trump had put her family in danger. How could you do this to my father? He was so good to you, she said. Megerman said he felt bad noting that her family had played a supportive role when he joined Renaissance. I loved your family, Megerman told Mercer. She wouldn't hear it. You're pawn scum, Mercer told him repeatedly. You've been pawn scum for 25 years. I've always known it. Get out of here, she told Megerman. A security member approached, telling Megerman to back away from the table. He refused, dodged the security detail, and approached Simons, asking for help. Jim, look what they're trying to do to me, Megerman called out. It's best if you left the event, Simons told him. Security forced Megerman outside to the curb, threatening to call the police if he didn't leave. Boaz Weinstein, another hedge fund investor, saw how distraught Megerman was and urged him to walk off his drinks and drive home. It took some convincing, but Megerman complied, heading for his car. I'm not denying I was a little impacted by the alcohol. 
It wasn't one of my finest moments. It wasn't my intent to create a scene, Megerman said several days after the event. But that doesn't change what she said to me. I didn't start the fight, and I didn't resort to the petty name-calling. Back upstairs, players buzzed about the confrontation, but the tournament went on. Soon, Bob Mercer was on a tear, rebounding from his earlier setback. Simons, Peter Muller of PDT Partners, and Brown all exited play, but Mercer kept on going. In the evening's last big pot, at around 1 a.m., he knocked English out of the tournament. He might have been humming to reverse his tell, English says, trying to explain his loss. It was so loud I couldn't tell. As Mercer smiled and accepted congratulations from his rivals, Megerman was on his way back to Philadelphia. Along the way, he received a text from Brown. Best to rise above all this and just live your life without getting caught up in a battle. I honestly think you will be happier. On April 29th, Renaissance fired Megerman. By the early fall of 2017, Anthony Calhoun's anger had intensified. The more the executive director of the Baltimore City Fire and Police Employees Retirement System read about Mercer's political activities, the more they bothered him. Backing Trump wasn't the problem for Calhoun. It was Breitbart, which had become associated with white nationalists. By then, Bannon had been pushed out of his job as the chief strategist to the president. Now he was back at Breitbart, and some expected him to push the publication to further extremes. Mercer also had backed Milo Yiannopoulos, a right-wing provocateur who had called feminism a cancer, once appeared to endorse pedophilia, and was barred from Twitter for abusing others. It was all too much for Calhoun. The Baltimore retirement system had $25 million invested in RIEF, and Calhoun decided to share his displeasure with Renaissance. He picked up the phone and called an RIEF representative. We've got real concerns, Calhoun said. The representative said Calhoun wasn't the only one calling with complaints about Mercer. Later, when Calhoun began speaking with industry consultants, he heard other Renaissance clients were sharing their own unhappiness with the firm. Soon, Calhoun and the rest of the board of directors of the Baltimore Retirement System voted to pull its money out of RIEF. The cash was a tiny part of the Renaissance Fund, and no one at the firm was worried about any kind of exodus of investors. But in October, nearly 50 protesters picketed the hedge fund itself, saying Mercer was their target, adding to the discomfort of executives who weren't accustomed to such negative publicity. By October 2017, Simons was worried the controversy was jeopardizing Renaissance's future. The firm's morale was deteriorating. At least one key employee was close to quitting, while another mulled a departure. Among the most important employees to convey their concerns was Wolfgang Vander, who had earned his PhD in high-energy physics at the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg in Bavaria, Germany. On Vander's Facebook page, if you send me a friend request, Tell me how we met and clear your page of Fox talking points. Thanks. Vander headed the firm's infrastructure group, effectively making him Renaissance's most senior technology officer. Simons became convinced that Renaissance would have a tougher time competing for talent. For more than a year, Simons had ignored Mercer's growing role in politics. Now he felt compelled to act. On a crisp October morning, Simons dropped by Mercer's office. 
He said he had an important matter he needed to discuss. Simon sat in a chair opposite Mercer and came quickly to the point of his visit. I think it's best if you step down, Simons told Mercer. It wasn't a political decision, but one made to ensure the firm's future. The scrutiny on the firm isn't good for morale, Simon said. Mercer wasn't prepared for the news. He looked sad and hurt. Nonetheless, he accepted Simons' decision without protest. Later, Simons told a group of students and others at MIT's business school that there was a problem of morale at Renaissance. Morale was getting worse. It wasn't an easy decision, Simons later told a friend. On November 2nd, Mercer wrote a letter to Renaissance investors saying he was resigning as Renaissance's co-CEO, but would remain a researcher at the firm. He blamed scrutiny from the press and said the media had unfairly linked him to Bannon. The press has intimated that my politics marches in lockstep with Steve Bannon's, he wrote. I have great respect for Mr. Bannon, and from time to time I do discuss politics with him. However, I make my own decisions with respect to whom I support politically. Mercer, who said he had decided to sell his stake in Breitbart News to his daughters, clarified his political views in the letter, saying he supports conservatives who favor a smaller, less powerful government. He also said that he had supported Yiannopoulos in an effort to back free speech and open debate but that he regretted the move and was in the process of severing ties with him. In my opinion, actions of and statements by Mr. Yiannopoulos have caused pain and divisiveness, Mercer wrote. In early 2018, a few months after stepping down from his job, Mercer received a call from Robert Frey, the former Renaissance executive who, after leaving the company, had founded a quantitative finance program at Stony Brook University's College of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Frey invited Mercer to lunch at a nondescript restaurant within the nearby Hilton Garden Inn, the only restaurant on Stony Brook's campus with waiter service. As they sat down, a couple of students recognized Frey and said hello, but no one seemed to notice Mercer, a likely relief to him. Mercer looked drained. Frey knew his old friend had gone through a difficult year, so he wanted to get something out of the way before the food arrived. During the election, Frey was unhappy with both candidates, and he couldn't bring himself to vote for either Trump or Clinton. Nonetheless, he told Mercer that he was fully within his right to actively support Trump in any way he saw fit, adding that, despite the widespread criticism, he didn't believe Mercer had done anything improper. There's been an imbalance in how you were treated, Frey told Mercer. Soros and other people influence politics as much as you do, but they aren't vilified like you are. Mercer smiled, gave a nod, but as usual, didn't say much in response. Thanks, Mercer replied. Mercer's reaction gave Frey the feeling that he should change the subject. The friends talked about math and the market, steering clear of politics for the rest of the meal. I felt bad for him. Frey says. Rebecca Mercer was having an even harder time of it. Mercer shared frustrations with friends about how she and her father had been portrayed and said some unfairly accused her of supporting racist causes. The criticism had sparked a backlash. According to a friend, she once received fecal matter in the mail. Another time, a stranger insulted her in public, leaving her shaking. In January 2018, 
More than 200 scientists and other academics who supported policy action to stop climate change endorsed an open letter calling on the American Museum of Natural History, New York City's most prominent science museum, to remove Mercer from its board, on which she had served for five years. They urged the museum to end ties to the anti-science propagandists and funders of climate science misinformation. Over a dozen protesters marched outside of the museum on Manhattan's Upper West Side, carrying placards saying, Get Rebecca out of our museum, and climate change is real. The museum never took any action, but in February 2018, Mercer felt the need to shift public perception. She wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal denying that she supported toxic ideologies such as racism and anti-Semitism, adding that she believed in a kind and generous United States. A month later, a new controversy erupted when Cambridge Analytica was accused of acquiring the private Facebook data of millions of users, setting off a series of government inquiries. Mercer, who was on Cambridge's board of directors and helped oversee the company's operations, came in for a new round of scrutiny and negative media coverage. By the middle of 2018, Bob and Rebecca Mercer were pulling back from politics. The Mercers had broken with Bannon soon after he was quoted making a critical comment about Trump's family, leaving the Mercers without a political conciliere. In the lead-up to the 2018 midterm elections, Mercer made just under $6 million in disclosed political contributions, down from almost $10 million in the previous midterm elections in 2014 and over $25 million in 2016. They've fallen off the grid, a leading member of the conservative movement said of the Mercers in late 2018. We don't hear much from them. Friends said the unexpected blowback they each experienced prompted a shift to a lower-key approach, with smaller political contributions and little regular communication with Trump or members of his administration. They were so much more successful in the political arena than they expected, it took off like a rocket, said Brent Bozell, a friend who runs the Media Research Center, a conservative nonprofit. There's bitterness. People have disappointed them. Part of the reason for the disappointment, friends said, was that most of the biggest donors to the Trump campaign received something for their generosity. The Mercers never asked for anything. Yet other financial executives, even those who hadn't supported Trump during his presidential run, such as Blackstone Group chief executive Stephen Schwartzman, were the ones regularly speaking with the president. The Mercers also made strategic flubs. In June 2018, Bob Mercer gave half a million dollars to a political action committee backing Kelly Ward, who drew criticism for accusing the family of Senator John McCain for timing the announcement of the end of McCain's cancer treatment to undercut her campaign. Ward was trounced in that year's Arizona Republican Senate primary. As the president and the Republican Party began gearing up for the 2020 election, the Mercers remained well-positioned to influence the campaign. They were still close to Conway. And, while they no longer had Bannon as a conduit to communicate to Trump or others, the Mercers were also big backers of a PAC that had supported U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton, maintaining their access to power. The Mercers told friends they were happy the Trump administration had cut taxes and chosen conservative judges, among other moves, suggesting they didn't regret becoming so involved in national politics. Still, 
Rebecca Mercer seemed more focused on other issues, most far from the headlines, such as working to boost free speech on college campuses. In October 2018, when she was honored at a Washington, D.C. gala, Mercer shared concerns about the level of discourse on college campuses, saying schools churn out a wave of ovine zombies steeped in the anti-American myths of the radical left, ignorant of basic civics, economics, and history, and completely unfit for critical thinking. Wearing a red, flowing gown and her distinctive diamond-studded glasses as she spoke to hundreds in the hall, Mercer served notice that she would continue to push to limit the role of government and make sure politicians emphasized personal responsibility. Calling President Trump a force of nature, Mercer indicated that she'd continue to play an active role in the nation's politics, no matter the backlash she and her father had endured, and would remain involved in the struggle for the soul of our country. I will not be silenced, she said.